You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from 3CR in Melbourne. Melbourne is still in stage four lockdown. I'm not broadcasting from the studio that Community Radio 3CR. Any ap- apologies now if there are any technical issues? Uh, we're obviously also broadcasting around Australia via the Community Radio Network. And uh, big hello to all those people in uh, Bellingen, Tari, Braidwood, Moira, Katoomba, and Yass in New South Wales. Listeners in Brisbane, Queensland, Melbourne, and Mount Beauty in Victoria, and Broome in West Australia. If uh, you listen to this program on one of those community radio stations or another community radio station affiliated to the community radio network uh, and uh, you've got a local community radio station which doesn't broadcast the Anarchist World this week, I suggest you uh, contact them and see why not. Now, if you wonder what Anarchy is all about, very simple concept, Anarchos without rulers. You don't need a PhD to understand what anarchism is all about. It's about creating a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of billions of people? Very simple, inequalities in power and wealth. To the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power or share power. It's the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Very exceptionally simple concepts. And those people of you who tell me, well, you, you know, you can't rely on human nature. Well, I agree with you 100%. A hundred percent. You cannot rely on human nature. We never know what we will do in different circumstances. We may have an intellectual uh, idea. We may think we're going to act in a moral and ethical way, but you never know. That's why anarchists do not rely on human nature. They don't rely on people doing the right thing. The rest of the community relies on leaders, and rulers to do the right thing by them. We do not rely on that because we understand that we're all born for club foot, that we all have issues. And that's why we want to break down hierarchy, share power and share wealth to ensure that individuals and small groups don't seize control of a sovereign nation state and then use that control to enrich themselves and enslave everybody else. It's a very simple concept. Well, today, 
we will be looking at the budget. The budget. It's a very interesting budget because uh, I call it Frydenberg Fairies at the Bottom of the Garden Values Budget. It's an interesting budget because he made it quite clear this is a values budget. This is not a budget about tackling the COVID-19 economic crisis and the economic crisis that corporate capitalism has uh, brought, brought us to. This is a values budget. It's not about your values. It's about the Liberal National Party's values and the people who support the Liberal National Party. That's that small section of the society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication and the investment class in our society. That 8 to 9% of Australians have enough disposable income to use this country's investment-friendly laws to amass their personal little nest eggs. That's what this budget is about. It's a value budget. I'll give you an example. Now, obviously, the COVID-19 crisis had an impact on a lot of people, but the people who suffered most are those at the bottom end of the economic scale, and that is those people in work who've lost their jobs, who are usually casualised, part-time, usually women, and these are the people who've borne the economic consequences of COVID-19. Obviously, other sections of the community have also borne the consequences of COVID-19 in terms of restrictions of liberties, restrictions of freedom. So in many regards, we've all done that. So what does the federal government, led by Mr Morrison, it's not the Morrison government, it is the federal government, it is the Australian government. I'm sick and tired of people talking about the Andrews government or the Morrison government, you know, I'm sick and tired. They are not their government. It is our government, okay? It's the federal government. It's state government. So that's what it is. But I'll give you an analogy about this values budget. If there's a bushfire racing towards your home, and this is an experience that many Australians will be facing in the next few months as spring turns to summer and as the CO2 emissions increase, and your neighbours come to help you because your property is in the direct path of the fire. And some are dressed in green and some are dressed in blue and some are dressed in red and some are dressed in yellow. Do you say to your neighbours, I only want the people who are dressed in yellow to address this, the bushfire? Of course not. You will use everybody there who is willing to offer you help to save your home. Now, the analogy is very simple. Australia is our home, okay? Is our home. Whether we're asylum seekers or refugees or permanent residents or people on temporary protection visas or people like myself who are born in this country or immigrants, Australia is our home. It's our home. It's always been the home of Indigenous Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but it is now our home. And if we're facing a crisis, you would think the government would harness the energy of each and every Australian in order to tackle the crisis, not just say, those who are dressed in yellow, we want you, we're going to help you to help us to address this crisis. And what this, what Frydenberg 
fairies at the bottom of the garden budget is all about. It's all about inculcating liberal, conservative, reactionary views as far as the response is concerned. Because this response is totally dependent on business and the corporate sector doing the right thing. And we know that in a capitalist society, a society based on private investment for private profit, there is only one mantra, there is only one God, there is only one religion, and that is creating profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Because if you don't create a profit in a capitalist society, you go under. Now, we are now facing an issue of many businesses going under. So instead of the government looking beyond its own values to address the current economic crisis, it is retreating to its own values. So the majority of the support that's been offered in this federal budget is directed at the business and corporate sector. You know, it's one thing. It's one thing for a Mr... For a Mr. Uh, got a bit of interference here, but that's the way it is in this business. It is one thing for uh, Mr. Uh, Frydenberg to tell us that all the support, that billions of dollars are going to go to the federal government. Is it another thing for us to look at other areas? So what is Frydenberg's ferries at the bottom values of the bottom of the garden values budget all about. It's about a number of things. The first thing, it gives business the ability to buy assets till the end of June 2022 and write those assets as a loss as far as taxation is concerned. So what that basically means is that most businesses, we won't be paying any tax till the end of 2022. But what it also means is that businesses will have to borrow money in order to pay assets because most of the businesses that find themselves in trouble today are in trouble because they haven't been able to trade. And they owe money to landlords and landladies they owe money to banks, and they're expected to trade out of this situation in the next two years. And let's not forget all that money that's been set aside, all that rent that's been set aside, all those interests, uh, mortgages that have been set aside. The key is that you have to pay that back within the next 24 months. So instead of assisting businesses with rent and mortgages, business mortgages, they are saying to them, go out there and buy stuff to stimulate the economy, in inverted commas, and you'll be able to uh, write off those assets as far as your taxation liability is concerned, which is totally ridiculous. So the next thing that they're offering is a cash payment to any business that is willing to employ anybody between 16 and 35. Now, if there is one section of the 
community, if there is one section of the community which is causing major issues, it's the fact that obviously a lot of young people have had major impacts, financial impacts, psychological impacts, as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Now, instead of offering people in that situation the ability to extend their education and improve their skills, they are offering them a pathway into a casualised, low-wage, exploitative system. Because if you remember before COVID-19, remember all the stories about all the businesses which are underpaying young people. So instead of strengthening the protections, strengthening the protections for young people in employment, what they're now doing is giving business carte blanche to exploit younger workers. I can imagine people being put on for a few weeks as they were in the past, then you get rid of them, you get another batch and the list goes on and on. So this is not the panacea that people think. At the same time, they have passed this uh, budget, they've, they've handed down this budget, they are passing legislation in Parliament which will increase fees for a significant proportion of young people at universities who are not doing hands-on type of training. So that's an issue. Then the other, so that, that is an issue, and obviously they've forgotten all those people at the other end of the line who find themselves on job seeker payment, who the older worker somebody in their 40s and 50s who has found it almost impossible to be, uh, go to work, to find work before the COVID-19 crisis, let alone now. So that's another weakness in what they have proposed in this values budget. Then we look at their plans for those on Job Seeker and Job Keeper, and it is quite clear it is quite clear that the government, the federal government, believes that the amount of money which is going to people on job seeker and to a lesser degree to job keeper is stopping them from looking for a job. So don't be surprised that over the next few months we will see people forced back into the casualised part-time digital economy, especially those people from 16 to 35 who employers will receive a cash bonus uh, running between $100 and $200 a week for employing people in that category. We've already seen Senator Kavanaugh can, you know, talk about the fact that people are sitting on their couches doing nothing because of the high amount of money they're getting there from job seeker and job keeper. So if this is a values budget, the Liberal National Party has never valued people who are unemployed. It has never valued people who are on disability support pensions. It has never valued people who are on aged benefits. They have been considered to be a burden on society. They have not been considered to, to be part and parcel of our community. So let's not forget that. Now, the other 
big thing in the uh, budget, as I said before, is apprentices. Now, a whole $1 billion has been directed to privately owned businesses to pay 50% of apprentices' wages, and I expect that this will include up to 100,000 apprentices. Again, I've got no criticism regarding that wage subsidy, but a better way of uh, improving the system would have been for government departments to take on apprentices. And the problem is, with the privatisation revolution we've had over the last four decades, there are now hardly any government departments which are doing anything in terms of, apart from managing people, and apprenticeships do not exist within the public sector. We have seen the disasters which have occurred in Victoria because there has been no public health uh, official training since 2011. And when the COVID-19 second wave hit, they weren't ready to deal with the situation because they didn't actually have the infrastructure to deal with the situation. So instead of putting their, what Frydenberg and the Morrison-led Liberal National Party have done and the Australian government has done, is put all their eggs in the private sector basket. This is a budget which only assists the private sector budget. The $250 that will be given in two uh, different times to people on pensions is nothing more than a little sop to keep those that section of the population uh, on side. So this is not a budget that is going to address the deficit. The deficit is over $214 billion, and within a few years it's expected to be a trillion dollars. So the government says this. This is its values-led fairies at the bottom of the garden values budget, and, and it's this. We will give taxpayers the money that's your money to the private sector they will stimulate the economy. They will employ more people and we'll be able to... More people will come off payments, job seeker and job keeper, and we will be able to work our way or trade our way as a country uh, um, through the economic crisis without increasing taxation for the corporate sector. Now, obviously, in order to help this garbage go down, you know, the tax cuts have been brought forward to, uh, to the 1st of July this year. They've been brought forward, you know, so people get a bit extra $1,000 in their pockets over the next 12 months. Considering the way prices have been going, that's not going to go very far. If you're a family, it may help you to uh, assist you with two or three energy bills if you're a family. If you're a single, same thing. So these tax cuts basically have been brought forward because they think that people will go out and buy more goods and services and stimulate the economy. The reality is different. The more money you earn, the more money you tend to squirrel away so you can invest it because of this country's taxation 
friendly laws. If they wanted to stimulate the economy, as we have seen during the COVID-19 crisis, they would have continued the extended job seeker payments and they would have continued to extend job keeper because nothing stimulates the economy more than giving money to people who don't have anything because they normally have bills to pay. They normally will use that money to survive, to put it back into the economy. So once again, we are seeing uh, a policy which is counterintuitive as far as addressing the uh, deficit. So I can hear you say, well, Joe, it's very easy to criticise. Joseph Toscano, it's very easy to criticise. Anybody can sit, you know, somewhere and criticise. The government's trying to do the best they can. Well, the government is not trying to do the best they can. The government has introduced, from their own words from Frydenberg's own mouth, a values-led budget. This is a budget which ignores a significant percentage of the population because they're on job seeker payments, because they're low-paid workers, uh, uh, because uh, they're casual, because they're part-time. It ignores a significant section of the population. This is not a budget which is going to address the deficit. So what are you proposing? Okay. Now we could get rid of the $214 billion deficit within 12 months. That's right, within 12 months. But it takes a little bit of lateral thinking and it takes a little bit of uh, courage to address this situation. And once again, I would like to raise a number of other ways to which you can raise revenue without major consequences. This is the type of budget that Frydenberg should have handed down to tackle the COVID-19 crisis, but it is not the type of budget that he has handed down because it is a Liberal National Party values budget. It's not a budget about addressing the economic crisis in a number of different ways. It's a budget of addressing the economic crisis only through uh, the private sector. There is nothing in it for the public sector. There's nothing in it for other sectors. So let's go back a few steps. What type of economy do we have in Australia? We basically have, because of privatisation, we basically have a private economy, an economy based on the concept of private investment for private profit. We have a domination of our economy by the private sector. The public sector, apart from managerial uh, values, has basically been written out of the equation because there's no public sector left. Even a little bit of money that's gone into infrastructure, which is quite minimal, a billion dollars a year over 10 years, is being used to basically bolster the private construction industry. There are no public industries worth talking about left in this country. 
tell you, there is no competition. We don't have a mixed economy where the private sector uh, competes with the public sector. There is no public sector competition. We saw what happened to the banking sector when the Commonwealth Bank was privatised over 30 years ago. We've seen what's happened to the energy market when many of the states uh, privatised their energy production facilities. We've seen what's happened when the ports have been privatised. We've seen what happened when Contours was privatised. We've seen what's happened when the uh, airports were privatised. And the list goes on and on. Every time you remove the public sector from an area of uh, activity in the economy, what actually happens is that competition decreases and you see the growth of corporations. And that's what we're seeing. So what are we proposing, Joseph Toscano? What is the Anarchist Institute proposing? What are people like public interest before corporate interest proposing? What are we proposing? As I said before, it's very easy to criticise. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you're interested in public interest before corporate interest, I uh, encourage you to look at the website, pipsi.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Download the application form, fill it out, send it back. If you're not on the computer, you're not interested in the virtual world, you can always ring us on 0439 395 489 and I'll send you out an application form. Or you can write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. While, while I'm at it, you may as well look at the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, a Facebook page, Joseph Toscana or Toscana for the Public or Defend and Extend Public Housing, and the list goes on and on. Instagram, plenty of places you can find things. Now let's get back. So what are we proposing? The first thing we are proposing, and you could almost halve the budget deficit in one year, is a 1% stock market turnover tax. Every time a stock or share is bought or sold, it's all computerised, and it's very simple for money that goes directly to the Treasury. 1% goes directly to the Treasury. You could raise over $125 billion a year with a 1% stock market turnover tax, which would have minimal effect on the economy. Now, all those people who say, oh, it's going to affect my superannuation payments when I retire, Think of what's happening to your superannuation payments every day when you've got to rely on the vagaries of the stock market in order to fund your old age. So think about that. Then the other thing I've... I mean, these are not original ideas, but other you know people have been suggesting for a long time is a 1% financial transaction tax. Because what we are seeing is large corporations that are transnational and have you know, got their head offices in low taxation countries like Ireland or the Caribbean, uh, not paying their fair share of tax. And if you've got a 1% financial transaction tax every time something is bought or sold, you have 
the ability to collect tax from a section of the pop, section of the uh, corporate sector that basically pays virtual taxation, no taxation, just pays it, you know, as a community offering. So a 1% financial transaction tax would raise almost $200 billion a year. So you've already got over $300 billion a year, which is wiped off this year's deficit. I mean, obviously, these things take courage. But again, if you're faced with a crisis, you need to take courageous action in order to address that crisis. I'm not talking about bloody revolution. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about a simple parliamentary vote, a very simple parliamentary vote, a vote in the House of Representatives and a vote in the Senate. It's a very simple concept. If they can vote to take away your rights and liberties because we have no constitutional protections of our rights and liberties, if they can vote to keep people on Nauru for seven or eight years in Manus Island, the most deplorable situation, you know, if they can vote to give their mates in the corporate sector corporate welfare, I'm quite sure with a little bit of push and prod from people like you and me, public interest before corporate interest, anarchist institute, and the list goes on and on, such policies could become part of the discussion in this country. A 1% stock market turnover tax, a 1% financial transaction tax. The trouble today in Australia in 2020 is there is no discussion about alternatives. The corporate-owned legacy media, social media, you know, uh, and to a more significant... uh, you know, and uh, the government guild, to a lesser degree, the government guild at ABC, there are no alternatives that are put forward to reform, not alone overthrow, but reform the, you know, the worst aspects of the capitalist system. So let's move on. Let's move on. Now, the third thing I've been very interested in for many years, and a lot of people who have got more radical tendencies have been interested in very easy, is the collective... The... Uh, collective sector, right? the collective sector. Now, in this country, we have one economy, one based on private investment for private profit. There is no basic economy in the public sector. There is nothing as far as collectives is concerned in this country. And what I would suggest, and again, is a suggestion, it's very simple to implement, You're going to give $30 billion so that businesses can offset purchases till, you know, uh, the end of uh, June, um, end of June 2022. Why can't we allocate a billion dollars towards providing seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives? Cooperatives and collectives can form a third tier of the economy. And they do form a third tier of the economy in many countries that have a strong public sector, a strong private sector, and a strong collective and cooperative sector. The beauty of cooperatives and collectives is they employ a lot of people. They keep them off the street. They keep them occupied. They keep them occupied in uh, 
productive type of industries. Nobody who works in a collective or cooperative becomes a millionaire. But at least what you can do is you can soak up all those people who are unemployed, who are looking for employment. And the fourth thing we should really be considering as on a daily basis is the concept of a universal basic income. If there's one thing that COVID-19 has demonstrated is that job seeker and job keeper in many regards are a universal basic income to ensure that people's basic needs are met. And a universal basic income means that every Australian would receive enough resources for the year or on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis in order to survive. And whether they work or not in the private sector or the public sector or the cooperative collective sector would be a matter of personal choice. And if they work in those areas, obviously the money they receive if in the universal basic income will be whittled away as their income increased and that can be drawn back through the taxation system. So a universal basic income does a number of things. It provides the basic necessities to everybody in society. It allows society to deal with disasters, whether it's COVID-19 or it's a pandemic, whether it's climate change, whether it's a climate emergency, whether it's a personal disaster. It doesn't mean people have to slip into poverty. And the third thing it does is frees up tens of thousands of people in the public service whose job today is to determine who receives what as far as pension payments is concerned, old age pensions, disability support pensions, and the list goes on and on. And these employees in the public sector could be redeployed to more productive areas, like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, like providing training to people, not leaving training to the private sector. And again, it takes a little bit of lateral thinking and again, it is based on values, not their values, but our values. I mean, they've got a value-laden budget. It's about time we had a value-laden budget, which is based on the concept of devolving power, sharing power, and ensuring that there is enough wealth created in a sustainable way to meet people's everyday human needs. It is no... It is no it's not surprising that 15% of Australians now live below the poverty line. It is not surprising. It is not surprising that over 700,000 children live below the poverty line. It is not surprising to see so much public money going to private institutions, whether it's private insurance, whether it's private education, whether it's private uh, health, and the list goes on and on. It is not surprising that the public through the taxation system, is basically supporting the, the private sector. And this budget highlights that when the private sector finds itself in trouble, it relies on the taxpayer in order to get itself out of trouble. We don't we keep throwing good money after bad, assisting the private sector, which is, as I said before, is based on the concept of private investment for private profit. So there, are, there is a great cause for concern as far as Frydenberg fairies at the bottom of the garden values budget. 
there is great concern for those people on fixed incomes. There is great concerns on people who have trouble paying their rent and their mortgages. There is great concern for all those small businesses that have deferred rental payments and uh, mortgage repayments. I mean, what's the point of having the ability to buy stuff for your business and going to more debt when you can't even service the current debt? There is no point at all. It is totally ludicrous. This is a ludicrous, pathetic response to the situation. So let's go back to the universal basic income. People say, oh, it's a nice idea, Joe, but how would you fund it? Very simple. Very simple. We are blessed. We are blessed because we have, as a nation state, some of the richest mineral deposits on the planet. We will be the biggest gold exporter next year in the world in the world. We have the greatest natural gas exports in the world. And the list goes on and on. And irrespective of what you think about coal and uranium and iron ore, you know, there is still a market for coal and uranium. Uh, and there'll always be a market for iron ore. So why have we allowed a few large corporations to dominate this sector and pay peppercorn royalties and peppercorn taxes. We could fund a universal basic income, and again, this would take a little bit more courage, by introducing a 50% profit tax on these corporations. I mean, they make enough money as it is. Why shouldn't they help us address the issues that we face as a community? Why should we allow them to take everything and leave nothing behind except a few jobs. You know? Think about it. And obviously, you could always nationalise these assets and we'd be the richest people on the planet. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I know you've been all budget out. You've all been COVID-19. You know, if you're sick and tired of COVID-19, obviously you're sick and tired of my budget analysis. So let's move on. Just a few little interesting things. Just like to remind people, the 9th of October is Peter Norman Day. Now, Peter Norman was the, the silver medalist at the Mexico Olympics in, in 1968, and his claim to fame came when the medal presentation occurred. And let's not forget that America was in flames over racial issues 52 years ago, as it is today, 52 years later, with the Black Rights Movement. And when the... Uh, uh, Tommy Smith, the gold medalist, and John Carlos, the uh, uh, bronze medalist in the 200 metres uh, race in that Mexico City, both Afro-Americans, said to Mr Norman, Peter Norman, that they would actually be giving black power salutes on the diet. He said, I will stand with you. I support your struggle for racial equality. And the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee was, I think, set up in about 2012. And the role of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee was to agitate for the erection of a statue to highlight the significance of Peter Norman's uh, stand, a great Australian, 
who was not invited to the uh, 2000 Olympics. I know we've just had the 20th anniversary celebration of the 2000 Olympics, but let's not forget that in the year 2000, Peter Norman, one of the greatest sprinters on this planet, a man who still holds the 200-metre record in Australia for the fastest uh, 200 metres ever run in this country by an Australian, was totally ignored and vilified. And when he died in 2006 at the funeral in Coburg, John Carlos and uh, Tommy Smith came to his funeral and declared the 9th of October, the day of his funeral, as Peter Norman Day, a day which is celebrated in the US of A. Now, obviously, with COVID-19 precautions, it is difficult to celebrate Peter Norman Day on the 9th of October. Last year, a statue was erected and unveiled for Peter Norman outside Olympic Park in Melbourne. So if you live within the five-kilometre radius of Olympic Park and you're going for a walk around Olympic Park or in that area, I suggest you take some flowers, lay them at the base of the statue between now and Peter Norman Day and maybe a week after, just to highlight that we acknowledge the significance of the actions Peter Norman took 52 years ago as far as race relations and racial equality is concerned. And it's quite disheartening to see that 52 years later, the United States of America and in Australia, let's not forget Australia, that we still have the same issues. So Peter Norman Day, if you live in other parts of Australia, you could do your own little ceremony just to remember the day, remember the action, and remember the phrase, I will stand with you. And this is a dilemma we face every day. This is not just a dilemma Peter Norman faced 52 years ago. This is a dilemma we face every day when we see behaviour which is totally unacceptable as far as racial relations are concerned. And this is the time that you need to stand up and say, I will stand with you and stare down the racists in our community who have become emboldened with the election of Mr Trump in the US of A and with the election of the Morrison-led Australian government, which has done very little to uh, uh, promote reconciliation between these and non-Indies Australian, which has done very little to promote the idea of a treaty or treaties, which has done very little, if nothing, regarding sovereign rights and compensation, especially for the stolen generation. So let's not forget, the issue is not just an American issue, it is an Australian issue. What Peter Norman's action highlighted is how important universal, how universal this struggle is. So don't forget the 9th of October, do your own little private ceremony. If you live in the vicinity, the five-kilometre radius, you're allowed to uh, walk or uh, uh, travel uh, near Olympic Park in Melbourne, central Melbourne, then put some flowers on the Peter Norman statue and hopefully next year we'll be able to uh, do a more fitting ceremony. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano.
Now, let's move on. Uh, it's all about Trump. Well, that's all I want to say. The American people have a decision to make. It's up to them. It's not up to us. I mean, but, uh, you know, it's not just about Trump. It's about 310 million people living, minus 200,000, living in uh, the United States of America. Uh, there are a lot of issues there as far as their election is concerned, as far as people being denied the right to vote is concerned. But again, this is an issue that they need to, to deal with. I'd just like to make a few comments about the right to protest. Now, I don't know how many times I've said this, and I'll say it again. You have no right to protest. You have no right to assemble, and you have no right to associate if you live in Australia. The right to assemble and associate is what gives you the right to protest. The only right to protest you have constitutionally is the right the government is willing to give you, as we see in Victoria. And it's quite interesting to see that the government is now using, the Victorian government is now encouraging the police to use the 1958 Incitement Act in order to punish, in order to try to nip in the buds any protests of any type. And let's not forget, it's not just people who are part of the Tin Hat Brigade that have been uh, um, prosecuted for uh, for incitement, have been charged with incitement for trying to organise demonstrations during this period. Let's not forget there are people from the uh, refugee uh, section of the community who uh, support refugees have also been charged with the uh, incitement. And incitement is a very interesting, broad concept that can be used at any time to deal with protests. So we don't have a right to protest. We don't have a right to assemble. We don't have a right to associate. We don't have a right to cross borders, and the list goes on and on. The only rights in Australia, because we have a constitution which is devoid, that's right, devoid of rights, human rights, which does not protect the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power, is the right that you are able to gain through struggle. All right, let's move on. Now, I've had a few debates with people recently. It's quite interesting to see in the values, fairies at the bottom of the garden, uh, Frydenberg budget, that there was nothing in it for social housing, community housing, affordable housing. Now, there's a lot of confusion in the community about public housing. And if you are confused, I suggest you go to the website, to the Facebook pages, Defend and Extend Public Housing, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, because there is a huge difference between public housing, social housing, affordable housing, community housing, and it's no accident that governments and people who work in the area who make their living from homelessness and housing affordability confuse the subjects, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes avertedly. Public housing in housing that is owned by the state and managed by the state. That is public housing. In Victoria, which has the most abysmal record as far as public housing is concerned, 
in the country. And it seems that Victoria has a lot of abysmal records, not just in public health, but we have seen a concerted effort over the last four decades to privatise what's left for the public housing sector. 40 years ago, up to 15% of the population lived in public housing. Today, there are less than 62,000 public housing homes and units with less than 3% of the population living in public housing. So public housing is publicly owned, publicly managed. In an era where, it's, where real estate has become an investment opportunity, it's not a matter of having a roof over your head. It's about an investment opportunity in an era where people with disposable income are able to invest in real estate and receive a tax deduction by negatively gearing properties. And in plain English, that means by borrowing more money uh, than they uh, borrowing more money and paying more interest than the rent they receive. And they can receive a tax deduction, which is extraordinary. Happens nowhere else in the world that I'm aware of. That you get a tax deduction for owning two homes, but you have trouble owning one home. Uh, the expansion of the public housing sector is critical. But what we've seen is the expansion of privately owned and privately run organisations, some for profit, some not for profit, some religious based, some secular which are trying to get their little grubby hand into the housing market and using, you know, uh, life terms like social housing, community housing, uh, affordable housing. But at the end of the day, this is privately owned housing. End of story. Think about it. Think about it. Go to defend and extend public housing. Public housing, everybody's business. Learn about the difference. And what's our solution for public housing? Very simple. Now, I'm, I'm familiar with the Victorian figures. I'm not familiar with the figures in other parts of the country that I'm broadcasting to. But in Victoria, between 5 to $6 billion every year is raised by the imposition of stamp duty. When somebody buys a home, you've got to pay stamp duty to the government. Raised between 5 to $6 billion this is the tax which is... Levied on the sale of a home, that's stamp duty. If you quarantine that money for public housing, you can house a 100,000 Victorians in 20 to 25,000 new units or homes every year. And you don't have to build them, you can spot purchase them around the country. So the public housing debate is heating up. Again, the values. The values, Frydenberg fairies at the bottom of the house, bottom of the garden, a budget has forgotten all about housing. And last but not least, did you know you're a product? What I've really loved about the COVID-19 crisis, and there's not much to love, is the rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and rise of digital capitalism. It's lovely to see trillion dollars digital capitalist companies which are making their profits on you. You're the product. That's right. You are the product in the digital world. Not only have you become the product, you've become the surveillance king. All those people working at home, the foreman, the boss, can't keep an eye on you. Don't forget Every time you strike a key on your little computer, they know what you're doing and they're not being paranoid. 
there's a lot of software out there which gives people the opportunity to actually monitor every aspect of your behaviour at home. So digital capitalism is the new kid on the block. It's uh, brushed aside manufacturing. It's brushed aside the financial sector. And it's the sector which has kept the stock market up where it is as more and more money flows into digital capitalism as people see that this is the way forward. Well, I don't see digital capitalism as the way forward. Digital capitalism is what takes us back to the 19th and 18th century. It's what wipes away all the gains that were made through the revolutions of the 20th century. Digital capitalism is about breaking down union. It's about casualising workers. It's about removing protections that workers have won over generations. Digital capitalism is 19th century capitalism. It's about centralisation of power over individuals and communities. It is Digital capitalism gives ability of the nation state to regulate every aspect of your existence. So if you think COVID-19 is an issue, well, COVID-19 will come and go, but digital capitalism will continue to be a major problem. And as you're the product, think very carefully about your interaction with the virtual world. I mean, it's not a warning, it's a reality. It's a reality. Just look at the soaring prices of the stocks of the five major digital capital companies on the planet and you will see what an extraordinary effect they have on society, especially as they are the major avoiders of tax on the planet. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. I'd like to thank the increasing number of people who are accessing The Anarchist World this week, broadcast on 3cr.org.au. I'd like to thank the staff at 3CR for keeping this program on air despite technical issues. I'd like to thank all the people at the Community Radio Network that have kept all these community radio stations around the country functioning during this uh, difficult period. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. You can become a member of public interest before corporate interest by going to pipsy.net. You can always leave messages, as I said before, at 0439 395 489. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.